This is Geek Gab with your hosts, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. That's right, Geek Gab for Friday, May 20th, 2016, episode 54, with a special guest tonight, the Rageaholic himself, Razorfist, broadcasting live from somewhere in the vast Pacific time zone. <laughs> I hope I haven't doxed you by announcing that, sir. <laughs> no, it's actually we. Ha I'm in Arizona. We have our own time zone. Fuck your oh Pacific nonsense. Just <laughs> fucking rebel over here. Does <laughs> Arizona not switch? Are you one of those lucky people who doesn't have like daylight savings time and stuff? I am. We're very, very fortunate. I have never set my clock back except when the power's gone out. Oh, man, if Texas would only do that, I would be off like a shot. Yeah. Th thanks for having me. I was, tell I was telling your buddy when I, when I was first invited, no one told me the title of the podcast. So I had to do some digging and, and like, find the name of the podcast, and I found something called Bacon Bits. Oh, yeah. Which, upon hearing the name Bacon Bits, I naturally assumed this was some elaborate assassination plot formulated by Jim Sterling. But... <laughs> But I knew that couldn't be the case, because when I checked her Twitter feed, I noticed his wife hadn't signed off on the idea first. <laughs> so, you know, couldn't have been him. <laughs> no, You really have to feel for the cat. I mean, I have to believe when he was first asked if he would like to be a cuck, he naturally assumed cuck was the name of some hand-breaded dinner item at Popeye's Chicken or something. It is an unnervingly large amount of these uh, SJW males started off as sane people who got involved with or married an SJW woman and then went off the rails. Yeah, it's amazing what people will do in the pursuit of pussy. And, and if I could swear, say didn't, so. Didn't he, didn't he engage in some Herculean harangue on Twitter? You know, about, oh, he doesn't identify as heterosexual or, or homosexual. And he's like, like <laughs> you got to love him saying he's not straight or gay because he finds sexuality labels dull. Like, I suppose I wouldn't be overly preoccupied with gender signifiers either if I'd lost mine in a roll of neck fat like 15 fucking years ago. But that's pretty much where he's at. <laughs> yeah, he's basically making excuses for the fact that he hasn't seen his dick in a decade and a half. See, and I'm actually going towards old school quotes here. What profiteth a man, it's from Thomas More, Ooh. what profiteth a man to sell his soul to gain the world but whales? And in the original quote, he's talking literally about whales, and of course in this quote, we're yeah. talking figuratively about yeah. whales. With a different so... <laughs> Apologies for the obscure reference, folks. There's a great movie out there about it. Go watch it. You'll understand. <laughs> Go do it. Look at look how literate we're getting here. This is what I bring to the table, even though I didn't bring that to the table at all. But I'm going to take credit for it, by God. You're I'm like the Peter Molyneux of podcasts. Typically on this show, whenever we have either a guest or a subject or a movie or something, one of us knows a lot about it. One of us knows kind of something about it because they bothered to do some research. And one of us knows... Almost nothing about the subject. So, in order, Brian knows the most about your show. He's the biggest fan. 
Um, John knows something about your show because he started watching many episodes when Brian suggested asking you on. And I have seen the Shadow episode, which I thought was great. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if I you hadn't already had a Hugo nomination, that alone would be worth it. Yeah, I've gotten, you know, The Shadow's always been, like, my second favorite comic hero, I would say, but but he is, man, he's neck and neck with Daredevil and always has been. But um, recently getting into The Shadow Year One and some of the Dynamite stuff, because I'd put it off for years, uh, sort of reignited my passion for the character and led me to, you know, seek out the pulps again, and start reading through those, which are superb, by the way. I've been I've been buying these Sanctum reprints of the Shadow Pulps, and they haven't aged a day, these stories. It's amazing. They were written, some of these, in 1931. And they just, they have shown no signs of age whatsoever. They're still just as good as when they were written. And they're fast reads, too. You know, they're, like, 50 pages or something. They're just, boom, you'll, you blow through these things. I am reading my way through the Conan uh, body of stories. I've got about three left, and they are just incredible. Yeah, no, Conan's fantastic. Another one of my favorite heroes is another pulp guy, which is Elric. Um, yes. El- Elric of Meldenbonet, which I, fa- I plan to do a full-blown Elric video at some point, because that's a character that absolutely deserves it, and has in- inspired so many other Fantasy, especially modern fantasy. I mean, where would modern fantasy anything be without the sort of original anti-hero, tortured anti-hero, and so forth? I I get so frustrated when um, people just casually dismiss all the pulp stories and say, "Well, they came out of racist time. They're racist. They're sexist. They're terrible." I was like, "No, these are great stories." I'm not saying there isn't stuff there that modern people won't find offensive, but there's a lot of shit that people back then would find offensive about our stuff, and maybe we're wrong. Well, the, I've said this before. You know, it it really it's <laughs> it really comes back fundamentally to the old truism that um, victors write history. So it really isn't. We're always moving in one direction or another, but it doesn't. To to, it's why I resent the term progressive, because you're you're only progressing in the sense that like there's no forward here. There's a spectrum, and you're either going left or you're going right or you're going to the side or what you know what I mean. You're moving. Yeah, it's branding. It's branding, right? Exactly. Exactly. Because because we're all we're all progressing, and 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 the progressives. Think that they have, they, they think that they know how they want society progress. They're like this. We're on we're on the right side of history, you know, as they say. They, they, well, that's... Yeah. To dredge up another quote by British intellectual, C.S. Lewis famously pointed out that a calendar is meant to tell time, not to tell the truth. Yes. It's chronological snobbery. No, that's absolutely factual. You know, I've I've often said if. I I suspected they haven't gone this direction, but I suspected that if the um for example if the Republicans wanted to rebrand themselves, that they would have to issue the conservative nomenclature at some point because Absolutely. conservative has too many regressive connotations. They want things to stay the same. You know these are the things that people think when they hear the name conservative, and it's 
not necessarily factual, and neither is the concept of allowing the other side to be called progressive because they're not really progressing toward anything because their ideas are ancient, just like the other sides are. They've been around for hundreds of years. Nobody's progressing toward anything. They're just moving in their direction of choice. Amen. So, you're the rageaholic. Yes. I was thinking, and I literally was thinking, like two hours ago, I was like, I got a list of like three things we can bring up on the show that'd be great. And then an hour or show, he comes on for the sound check, and I can't remember any of them. Not a single one. I don't know what it is. I just couldn't remember any of them. And finally, I remembered one of the three. Not all three, just one of the three. I figured that we need to have the Rageaholic on because there are some things out there that normal, decent, sane people can actually get upset about. <laughs> and the first one of which is this poor son of a bitch, and I can't really say that, poor son of a bitch YouTube guy, because he's got like 2 million subscribers, 2 million YouTube subscribers, who made this really, really mild, kind of boring video. Honestly, it was just really mild and kind of boring, saying... I'm not really interested in the new Ghostbusters movie. I'm not going to re re uh, review it. He didn't rant about anything. He didn't rant about misogyny or SJWs or anything. He just kind of said, no, I, it's not for me. I, I think it'll be bad. I love the first one. I'm, I'm not going to review it. Yeah. And he had, like, major Hollywood stars, this this laundry list of blue checkmarked accounts on YouTube, plus the Atlantic, or on Twitter, plus the Atlantic, and a couple of other major publications just shitting on him. I'm like, yeah. dude, what the hell? What do you have to do that is so completely mild to get the SJWs to massacre you? It's insane. Yeah. It, it's no longer about you. They're not even... It wasn't even an affront against social justice. It was just... This guy's a Ghostbuster fan, which, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm not. Okay, I've never been a Ghostbusters fan, uh, personally. You know, even as a kid, I was into other stuff. Ninja Turtles, whatever the fuck. But he is clearly a Ghostbusters fan. He reviewed the old games. He talked about the movies. He's He loves this shit. And what I got from his video watching it was he kind of regards it the same way I regard the shitty Michael Bay Ninja Turtles movie. In that, oh, it's a shitty modern reboot. I said this on Twitter. Like, he's a sexist for not wanting to watch this movie? Like, when did we take... Just not wanting to watch the movie because it's a shitty modern reboot with shitloads of just god-awful CGI off the table. Like, when was that completely removed from the argument and we jumped straight from zero to sexism? When Hollywood that... started actively hating its audience? That's what, <laughs> yes. That's, yeah, that's... Enjoyment is now mandatory. It's not enough that you, you know, aren't racist. Now you actually have to go out and endorse every single one of these uh, character substitution movies, or you are actively racist and sexist. That's where Marvel screwed themselves with Doctor Strange. I mean, yeah, they brought in a white woman to replace uh, the ancient one, but if it had only been an Asian woman then they would have been perfectly insulated and the SJWs would be massacring anyone who dared to offer a dissenting opinion. Yeah. And that's really kind of... That's where we're at, essentially. It's just everything has to be scrubbed clean with this whitewashed veneer of, of politically correct acceptability. I just cut a damn rant about this on how it's beginning to to slink its way into video gaming. 
from, you know, it's been in Hollywood for years. And boy, looking at how well Hollywood is doing with these plummeting box office receipts, who wouldn't want to emulate their behavior at, at the <laughs> moment? But and but it really is, I think it's part of, it's sort of a two-pronged problem. Number one, video games have a massive self-esteem issue. I've talked about this in the past um, in one of my videos. Uh, I think it was the the perils of the press pass, or maybe it was one of one of them where I was talking about how. Uh, no, it was the Connect one. It was the Death Thy Name Is Connect video, where he talked about I, how I think the Connect. One of the reasons Microsoft went so all in on the Connect is because Steven Spielberg endorsed it really early, and they were like, "Oh my God, Steven Spielberg! He likes our thing." Even though our our video games are making shitloads more money than Steven Spielberg could hope to make in the next year, we we just want his approval so bad because we're just lowly little video games making lots more money than Hollywood. And they're big, monolithic Hollywood. They've been around for years. They're a legitimate art form. you know. And so I think that's a part of it. <laughs> they just want to emulate Hollywood so badly. Yeah, well, as, there's there's as another thing, too, that... Really, really quick. As a sci-fi writer, I can tell you the temptation to chase after the the literati, the uh, supposed respectable ones in your field, and try to get senpai to notice you, always leads to disaster. Yeah. Well, it's uh, there's another aspect to that too. That the whole Xbox One then Connect thing, the aspect of it is that Microsoft has been whipped, and they're trying so hard to to get something you know they they you know they're getting whipped by google whipped by apple depending on you know what sort of market you're looking at and in the pre, in the prior generation they they won that generation i mean the xbox 360 was a great platform xbox live which was the most amazing ripoff uh, ever invented in video game worse than microtransactions in my opinion uh, is the fact that you have to pay an extra $15 a month just to play your online games yeah. uh, but but it made them a ton of money and they won that console generation <laughs> And their competition wound up adopting that model, which is the ultimate sort of validation of that, of that concept, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So, so they they were just trying to do another thing, right? Like, oh, it, they tried to see into the future, where we all know that. I mean, most of us are getting our video games off of Steam, etc. Like that. We know that digital downloads are the future. So that whole fiasco when they tried to release the Xbox without any physical games, just no, you you have to download it all, right? And and you know the it backfired on them. So I, to sum up, Microsoft's a bunch of tryhards. I know. I work there. <laughs> uh, it's a shame because the whole Xbox experiment started off so well. I love the original Xbox. So um, good. I mean, it was it was designed, co-designed by Seamus Blackley, a former Looking Glass guy. I worship the ground that Looking Glass walks on. You know, I'm a huge Thief fan and System Shock guy, and, you know, of course they had a hand in Deus Ex, even though they didn't make it, a lot of their former employees did. You know, they created some of the most important games ever made, and there's this direct looking glass legacy to the original Xbox, and you can feel it, because it's, it's the best elements of console gaming with the multiple controllers and the, you know, plug-and-play qualities that consoles have, and the lack of compatibility issues... But then it's got all the best stuff of a PC. It's got the hard drive. It's got the online. It's got, you know, it's got all that shit that's that was going on. So, 
See, such and, a shame where it went towards the end of last generation. And make no mistake, that's where these problems started. They didn't start with the Xbox One. And much like with the PS3's difficulties and how they started really at the tail end of the PS2's cycle, 2003-2004, Sony underreported story, Sony lost tons of money in its gaming division on the PS2 towards the end. So you, you start to lose the momentum towards the end of the previous generation, and then it, it turns to a full-blown shit blizzard when the next generation starts. It's a pattern. It's been a pattern going throughout gaming. Anybody else get an extremely disturbing yet vivid image in their head as soon as he said, shit blizzard? <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> you can't not. I mean, I, I'm just seeing the EA logo. Am I... Am I uh... <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Shots. Call the burn ward. <laughs> oh. uh, I'd feel bad for EA. I really, really do. Because I'll be honest here, and I know I know why this puts me. I know that it puts me in like an absolute minority of gamers, but I don't understand exactly why. I don't think the Call of Duty Infinity looked that bad. It didn't strike me as like the worst game ever. Yeah, it, it didn't look bad for a Halo game. It was all right. <laughs> I just, I don't understand the apps. I mean, it's got like twice as many dislikes as the Ghostbusters trailer. That's yeah. how bad people hated that trailer. Yeah, I didn't really get it. I, maybe it's maybe it's the sci-fi elements. Maybe the old school Call of Duty guys are kind of bridling now because they're expecting more modern warfare. Okay, we did the sci-fi thing for a couple games. Now we'll go back to modern warfare or we'll do... I think people are looking for Modern Warfare 2 again. It's kind of where we're at. It's an awesome game. Hey, well, <laughs> watch my review on that, but yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't care too much for it. The first one, though, I like the first Modern Warfare. I think it had some interesting scenarios um, and whatever, but it got to the point where it was very formulaic, where every Call of Duty game had to have the sniper sequence, had to have the snowmobile slash motorcycle slash hover cycle. There always had to be that on-rails vehicular sequence. And, you know, it became very formulaic. You had this mission and that mission, and they were just kind of checking boxes. But the multiplayer, of course, is where those games live or die, and I've hardly touched the multiplayer on those games, I readily admit. So... Yeah, I, I tell you what, my my thing actually, I I I prefer a, a niche of the multiplayer, which is the, the fucking the land game. Basically, the shit you can play with your office buddies at work. Yeah, yeah. if they're doing stupid shit, you can reach over and smack them across the back of the head. Yes. Yeah, like you just no, you're not using the sniper rifle. Like that's I don't know if you saw the scene in the office. Use the sniper rifle on that map. I am actually going to kill you. <laughs> um, but the. Uh, the quality in multiplayer, in my opinion, and I'm not a professional, I'm just a guy who likes to play casually with some friends, um, it dropped off real bad after even the first Call of Duty. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even... Uh, I spent half an hour playing zombies with my brother on, on one of the, none of the newer ones. I, I don't know what they're doing, but uh, I, I, I don't know if the... Well, let me put it this way. You're not seeing um, professional players winning tens of thousands of dollars at Call of Duty tournaments, are you? No. I will say this. It uh, The whole thing with Battlefield 1, uh, contrasting it with Call of Duty Infinity, made uh, it's the only ballsy thing they've ever done with the Battlefield franchise, ever. Well, look, I, I stand by, 
I think it started out well enough. Battlefield 1942 is one of the most fun PC casual war multiplayer games you can you can play. I mean, it's just a blast. That game was so much fun for the first time ever. Seamlessly, you could you could run around shooting people, but you could also jump in a plane or you could jump in a tank or whatever. You know, it was pretty cool, and they even worked in the historical aspect with it with expansions where you were playing in Italy and there was, you know, like they actually fleshed this out and it was an interesting mythos and they seemed to be doing right by the license and so forth. And it was okay for a little while, but after, after it got modernized with, you know, Battlefield 4 and Battlefield Bad Company and all this, it just, it completely lost the plot. Uh, to me. Battlefield 1 is interesting because it feels, I, I agree, it feels like the first attempt to really create a different kind of world around it. But here's something that worries the shit out of me. The story just came out this last week, actually I think it was like two days ago, that EA executives had not greenlit Battlefield 1 for the longest time. Apparently they had been pitching a World War 1 Battlefield game for like the last half decade. And every time EA was like, World War One game can't be fun. Can't be fun. Can't be fun. So the developers finally had to put together at their own expense a playable demo of the gameplay. And it was only upon playing that that the executive said, okay, maybe this can work as a major franchise. Which worries the shit out of me only in the context of, okay, what kind of quick time event, like over the top, like the kind of shit that appeals to executives when extravaganza did they put together, and is that going to be in the final game? Because I want to play a World War One game, but I don't want to play a World War One game where it's you know tap X to leave the trench. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, this is the last thing I wanted to talk about, and we are. Uh, had a great show where we are getting down to the last 10 minutes, is not at my table. A new hashtag on Twitter that started off as a bold, brave expression of honorable and decent progressive intentions and was brutally, cruelly, bloodily invaded by the vast hordes of shitlords, MRAs, and gamer gators. This <laughs> tragedy... This absolute tragedy started off with a statement of pure and noble beliefs called the Tabletop Creed, <laughs> which I shall share with you now. Not at my table is a mindset that GMs and players adopt. That just, that just sounds so Orwellian. I'm sorry, I broke character here, but that just sounds so Orwellian. It's a <laughs> mindset. Say that again just for posterity. <laughs> Not at my table is a mindset that GMs and players adopt. It's standing up and letting it be known that certain actions will not be tolerated. So not at our tables. Not in our games. So does that mean, like, I, I, I want to split the party? No, not at my table. <laughs> I, I want to roll a bard. No, not at my table. <laughs> so it sounds like pretty much what they're mandating is a dickbag DM who wants to control every goddamn thing. Oh, wait, now it's all making sense. Okay, never mind. Continue. This is where we go to escape, feel safe, and have fun. 
They've obviously never played a good horror role-playing game. And as the creators of these worlds, we have an obligation to make sure this space is safe for everyone. Now, I just want to point out that this was started by five or six people who do a Twitch TV D&D broadcast. They're not creators of anything. They yeah. don't make role-playing games. It's like they're the guests of honors at Gen Con. <laughs> um, they might actually be. I have no idea. I've never heard of them before today. Here we go. Last last third. I'm sorry, I had to do this in, in like spurts so I could gather my energy to get through the next section. With this in mind, we don't have room for hateful, racist, or sexist attitudes in any way, shape, or form. Not at my table. <laughs> wow. <sighs> sexist attitudes, by the way, folks, sexist attitudes include any kind of female character and or art where you can see secondary sexual characteristics like legs and hips and breasts. That's sexist to this group of people. So I don't know if it's if they want D&D 6th edition to be all burkas all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining the school marm makeover now. Which is great because... Uh, RPGs, especially the the printed modules and stuff, they're already pretty tame and family friendly. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> That's just amazing. That I, I just don't understand. Well, first off, what's the impetus for this? Like, what did, did you know? What it makes it sound? It sounds so reactionary and so fucking blowhardy and so fucking obvious. That it's like, it sounds, they make it sound like they're reacting to the KKK blowing through town and taking over D&D &D tables all over, all over the city. You know what I mean? And yet we know nothing of the sort happened. Absolutely. More likely what probably happened is some bitch was being an entitled bitch and some, some dude or chick was like, stop being an entitled bitch. And then it was, not at my table. You know what I mean? It just... They seem to be arguing in a vacuum. Um, some of the supporters have just brilliantly priceless comments. Um, Since the 1980s, sadly, almost all my RPG experience is with white males of my own age, but still, not at my table. See, he's yes. saying, yes. I'm not a racist, even though I only game with white males. No, that, that's, the, that's the hilarious part of it all. You know, most D&D &D tables, I mean, come on, we've... we've We've all, even if we haven't played D&D, we've all seen D&D be played. Let's be honest, I've seen more soul in Justin Bieber's cornrows than the average D&D &D table. Not a whole lot of African Americans and, you know, the occasional Asian. But that's about it. And that's, whatever. That's friends being friends and having similar interests. You know, I, I don't, you don't meet a lot of black guys who are into heavy metal guitar. It's just kind of a cultural thing. You're raised one way, you're raised around something, so you get into it. If you're not raised around something, then you're probably not going to be into it. It's as simple as that. This this dude. This is just in. Hold on, this is just in. Bradford Walker in the chat reports that not at my table does not autocomplete anymore. <laughs> 
absolutely there is no room for cruelty at my table. Cruelty. Cruelty? See, okay, I just would like to point out the irony of someone who is described in name as a dungeon master having a, a moral opposition to cruelty. You're a dungeon master. Like what? I could I could call you a kill guy and it would actually be it, the cruelty would actually be a less direct connotation. What the shit? I don't understand it. This is entire this is literally what dungeon dungeon masters do. You're supposed to be a dick. You're supposed to be the guy who says, "Oh yeah, you go down that hallway, there's a poison pit with fucking spikes." You know what I mean? Yeah. And it feels good every time you do it. Yes! <laughs> I, I think we should force these people to play through the Tomb of Horrors and see how triggered they get. <laughs> so, so, but, but here's, here's what's bothering me. It, it, are they talking about in-game or, or out-of-game uh, things? Because well, that's, I mean, that's the thing about these folks who use the Bill of Rights as a fucking wet nap. They like to keep their demands as general as possible. Because then they can perceive violations in every aberrant twinge of a social situation. And you know, I, I think I think this is what's happened with the uh, with the online community, like th this new online culture where if you go to old RPG forums or um, even the one on Stack Exchange, where there's always questions about, hey, I've got a problem player in my campaign. How do I deal with that? This is a normal thing where where somebody might be hateful or racist or sexist in in a not an awesome way, and you have to deal with that. I, I where, where where does a person think that dealing with that is making up like some sort of code and posting it on the internet and and ask that everybody who shares my hobby or might be in that sort of situation follow that code? How do you get from A to B? Well, again, as we discussed earlier before the show, that would be a rational question if they're actually trying to solve a problem, but they're not. They're manufacturing problems yeah. to institute the code for control. Exactly. That, that's what it comes right. That's what I was trying to say. It comes back to just wanting your beliefs to be validated at every turn and to have a, some measure of control over the people around you. I don't know what happened in these people's childhoods that they feel this compulsion, this psychic compulsion to control everything, but there it is. You know, that's you know, you know what the problem is? The answer to that is nothing. Nothing happened. They were raised pampered with no adversity, yeah. no challenge at all, and they have no idea what real life is like. You, it, it is sad and pathetic. you gotta, you got to think about it from this point of view. It used to be that left-wingers, when they sought for control, they were seeking for control of the entire of country of France so they could execute all the nobles with the guillotine. Or they sought to take control over Russia so they could create the communist empire over Eastern Europe and all these other countries around. I mean, leftists used to have grand ambitions of control. And now your idea of control is to come to a bunch of geeks sitting around a table, rolling dice. That's what you want to control? <laughs> uh. 
I think it's like somebody uh, said. I think it was uh, Summers, actually, Christina Summers, who who pointed out the uh, the social justice warriors went after the gamers, um, and now the tabletop gamers because they thought they were a bunch of weak nerds, and that just blew up in their face. Is it not not to turn this into a wider presidential election thing? But do you think some of this slacktivism and the the sudden proliferation of it in completely innocuous circumstances like comics and video games and role-playing, do you think maybe this has something to do with how sapped of energy and demoralized that side of the political aisle is during this election? You know what I mean? Like, even the people who are behind Bernie Sanders kind of know he's not going to be the guy because Hillary's clearly going to be the nominee. And their their voter turnout is way down after eight years of Obama being really unpopular. You know what I mean? You think maybe they're just like, fuck this political thing. I'm going to focus on video games. That's something I can control. If I were... Seriously, honestly, if I were a Bernie supporter, I would be pissed. I would be rioting in the streets because he has won so many of those contests. Even now, even this last week, he won two in a row. And yet he's still getting fewer delegates than Hillary, and she wins every single quote-unquote random event. She wins. Don't, don't know if you saw, but they kind of are... They, yeah, it, well, they are, but they're, you know, they're Bernie supporters, so they're less than effective. But I, I'll tell you the truth. This is my theory about it. The world has become a much unsafer place in the last three or four years. We are seeing literally um, cult from the, not even the Dark Ages, not even a medieval cult. We're talking ancient world cult. We're talking pre-Roman Empire cults that are putting people in cages and lighting them on fire that are selling young girls into sex slavery that are, that are you know, they just, 150 women who refused to be sex slaves just massacred them. Oh, the or world. The, fuck the story that just came out yesterday about them dropping a bunch of guys into acid until their organs liquefy. This, this is an evil, insane shit going all over the planet, not just in ISIS. And you either have to demand that something be done about it or face it psychologically and understand it and incorporate it, or you have to take all that energy, ignore it, put it aside, and that energy is going to come out somewhere. If you're feeling threatened, if you're feeling angry, if you're feeling um, afraid, and you can't or won't let yourself react to the real enemy, you're going to have to react to some other enemy that's imaginary, and that's gamers. Absolutely. That's my theory. I, and I, I just wanted to uh, add to Razor's point a minute ago about the, the level of energy from the side. We're all about the same age. What, was, what did it used to be when we were young, the common wisdom about how the parties choose their uh, presidential uh, candidates? The Democrats fell in love, and the Republicans fell in line. And that's been split, because um, Hillary's been waiting 40 years for this, and, and damn it, she's going to get it. Yeah. And the Republicans have... have the, the line died. Uh, the bushes, the bushes killed the fucking line. There's, there's nobody stepping up who's, who's reasonable or viable. Yeah, it turned into a firing squad. Is what the yeah. line turned into? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, I mean, when, when, when 
when people like Newt Gingrich were seriously coming up and going, yeah, yeah, maybe I'll throw my hat in, and it's like, oh, that's it, right? It's yeah, over. No, complete and jump the shark moment. Absolutely. Yeah, what tickles what tickles my testes to no end about the cats who claim you know Trump has no chance in hell or whatever, is that you know this is obviously a season of change. Clearly, a season of flux on both sides. You know, it's a year of out with the old and in with the new of upending conventional power structures. <laughs> and who does the left put up? Cruella Deville and a socialist Muppet from the Dark Crystal. <laughs> like, like, no, sorry, my bad. If you've watched Sesame Street late, lately, you know goddamn well the socialist descriptor is perfectly redundant at this point. <laughs> Last time I caught Sesame Street, Snuffy was hitting up Big Bird for reparations. That was <laughs> <laughs> But but seriously, like, could they have missed that point any harder? I just, I don't see it. It, it. it To me, just looking at that, you can see immediately where Trump's appeal comes from, if for no other reason than just people wanting, you know, to burn it all down. Welcome to the internet. Isn't it great? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these people who thought that gamers were pushovers, clearly they've never been anywhere near one of the flame wars that have been roaring for the last 20 years on the internet. I mean, yeah. Mac versus PC flame wars, or Emacs versus Vi, or, uh, you know, PlayStation versus Xbox, D&D versus everything else. I mean, you have to know, if you've been anywhere near one of these flame wars, that, that gamers are really, really stubborn, argumentative, Sons of bitches who aren't going to give in to anybody telling them how to do things. Yeah. It, you know what probably happened is, you know, when films started out, in you have to you have to compare this to film because the, you know these are the really the two dominant forms of media in the in the 20th century. When when films started out, it wasn't long before they were policed. You know, the the Hayes Code came along in what the 30s. Films had only been around for a couple decades by then. Talkies were even were brand new at that point, and that was one of the reasons the Hayes Code came along. Because oh my God, they can say things now. They could say anything, and we have to be able to control that. So here comes the Hayes Code. Video games went for like forty years, almost completely unregulated in terms of content. And then came the ESRB and so forth, the Moral Combat and whatever. But even that, it's a complete afterthought. It's it's the parental advisory explicit lyrics thing. Just copied and pasted into the modern day. That's all the ESRB is. Fuck, if anything, an M rating just makes kids want to buy it more. You know, that's pretty much how it works. But now they're realizing it went it went so long unregulated, I think gamers got to the point where it's like, well, this is how it should be, this is how it should always be, and fuck anyone who tries to change it. And I think that's a huge part of the blowback to the SJWs constantly trying to teabag everyone with their sociopolitical dogma. I'm going I'm to write that down. I'm going to use that. Teabag everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. Has anyone here read Console Wars by Blake J. Harris? No. Not me. Nope. I, I don't read, actually. Oh, yeah. Well, you read half. But that's another story. <laughs> but yeah, console wars. It's it's about the uh, rivalry between Sega and Nintendo, and uh, the author gets into sort of the the start of government regulation of video games, like with Lieberman's hearings, 
So it, it, it's fascinating. Backs up a lot of what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, Lieberman's here. And then, God, even a couple of years ago, Biden held hearings. You know, Obama Obama alluded in his gun control speech in the wake of Newtown about the need for regulation of violent video games. You know, it's it's no longer, you know, people like the NRA and so forth who are pushing for violent video games to be regulated. Although, you know, the NRA have made stupid fucking statements too, which is hilarious. The, the NRA in the past have called for violent video games to be regulated. They made a violent video game in the past. The NRA. The NRA <laughs> made a first-person shooter. <laughs> oh, I gotta play that. <laughs> but, yeah. All right. Well, we are we're just a tiny itsy bitsy bit over time here. Not a problem. Yeah. Um. Before we go, is there any other subjects or comments people wanted to make? Uh, actually, I've been waiting to get Razor on the show uh, now for a couple of weeks so we could talk about Street Fighter. <laughs> oh yeah, Street Fighter Five. Well, let's actually, step on over to the giant sales crater, shall we? <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> I actually, actually, I'd love to get your take because I actually, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a little life story. When, um, when I got my, uh, I think 360, I immediately got Ultra Street Fighter Four, and I started it up, and I saw that the art was horrific, and um, the they had unlockable characters. And so I immediately, and this is a guy who, who grew up playing Street Fighter. Um, I spent thousands of dollars at the arcade when I was in college, right? Yeah. I just, I took it back, and I went back to playing Super Turbo. Uh, so I'm pretty, I've been out of Street Fighter for years. So I'd love to hear sort of your, your take on it, because I was I was ready. I almost pre-ordered Street Fighter V, and then I started reading news, and, and tell me what's going on. Well, for one thing, it's like everything I hate... Okay, I, I've done... <laughs> I'm one of the few like video game reviewers who kind of reviews fighting games on occasion. You know, when I really... You know, there's not... For some reason, I don't know what it is about fighting games. Maybe it's just they have fanatical fan bases who usually, you know... It, that usually connotes a bit of blowback. So a lot of people just are like, fuck it, it's a headache. Don't I'm not going to bother with it. But I've been reviewing the Street Fighter games really since my... my series started, and I'm a huge... I used to do the tournament thing. I was at Evo in 2006. That's where I met Darkside Phil. <laughs> um, so it's it's a whole fucking thing. But I... I have a, a history. I love Street Fighter, but it has completely lost its way. And it lost its way, frankly, on Street Fighter 4 when it got so much slower. Street Fighter... Street Fighter isn't necessarily supposed to be the fastest fighting game ever. But it does have to be faster than Street Fighter 4 and 5 are. Because otherwise, you know, Street Fighter's always been a little bit more tactical, a little bit slower than a lot of other fighting games. But it is, in, it is not glacial. It's not supposed to be. You're not, you're not supposed to feel like you're fighting underwater, which is how the last couple games have felt. And Street Fighter V only makes that worse, although they added, they, they added a few tweaks to make it a little bit faster... Then the big problem, frankly, is that they, and as Capcom just admitted, by the way, that they rushed this game out to meet a release date. And I think we all saw that coming. Like, when we saw the piteous roster for Street Fighter V, when we saw all these various things, we understood, you know, the lack of a arcade mode for the game, which is important. This is how you learn how to play new characters. 
You know, people say, oh, arcade mode isn't important. The, the brain-dead simps over on SRK.com who have a, a bottomless bag of fucking apologies like Tinky Winky from the goddamn Teletubbies on crack, they're always bringing out the, well, arcade modes don't matter. It's all about multiplayer. Yeah, that that's a great fucking idea. When I jump on Street Fighter V for the first time and I decide, hey, I'm going to play as this character instead for the first time, just never play... Let's say I want to play as Cammy for the first time ever. I think I'll head it on over to competitive matches online and get my asshole torn seven different fucking directions by a complete asshole stranger in Korea. That's brilliant. I think I'm going to go with that. Right? Arcade modes are important, and... The game just at the bottom, at the end of the day was not finished. It all comes back to that, and it just came out on May 9th that uh, Street Fighter V had actually uh, failed to hit its sales goal, which was not all that ambitious. It was 2 million copies, which is chump change in today's gaming market. And they, they're about 600,000 copies shy of the 2 million sales goal that they were supposed to hit. So this is a resounding failure for Capcom. That's too bad uh, for for one of my favorite video games of all time in their flagship series. I, I would agree about the arcade mode, um, yeah. especially since how do I put it? Um, we I, I think I know why. I think I know why uh, the SRK folks and and um, what's his name? What's her name? Capcom made the decision that they did uh, to rush with that arcade mode. I don't. Did you know that the Japanese don't play in arcades the way we do? Oh yeah, no, I'm well aware. I've been there twice. I've been to you know the big arcades that they have out there. I'm I'm well aware. Their their arcade scene is a completely different situation, uh, but it's it's handled completely differently in a home console. Arcade mode is not a real arcade mode. It's it's genuine. It's just a single player. You know what it is? It's a glorified training mode. That's how yeah. we use it. Yeah, right? exactly. And that's how I used it playing you know Super Street Fighter on my Super Nintendo for you know. For, you play it for an hour every day, but but to just to unpack that, right? Because you know that uh, they play at separate cabinets or, or at separate screens instead of right next to each other at their same cabinet, which is normal for the U.S. Yeah. They don't value the, the experience. They value is that uh, that online head-to-head -head, uh, competitive uh, play because that's how they learn and that's how they play. So playing playing on the console against someone online is just the same, or almost the same as playing at an arcade there, right? Which is great if you're planning to target the Japanese market, which they failed to do as well. It was an even bigger disappointment, as big of a disappointment as it was in the States and in the West in terms of sales. Street Fighter V was a thermonuclear detonation in Japan. It failed to sell anywhere near what they were aiming to sell. It was a huge disappointment for them, sales-wise. So, whatever they were trying to appeal to, they resoundingly fucking failed. That's too bad. That's too bad. Oh, and, 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 and really, it comes down to, you need a shake-up here. Yoshi Noriono has been with the company since Street Fighter III Third Strike. Actually, he's been with the company since Street Fighter III, I think. He may have even worked on a few of the Alpha games in a diminished role. And he's been the, the full-blown producer since Street Fighter IV. And Street Fighter IV, I can understand, that was a huge success. Although, you know, after how long of an absence, it should have been a success. People were pining for Street Fighter. And not just pining for Street Fighter, it was kind of like the reaction when Star Citizen was revealed for the Space Sim fanatics. Like, oh my god, there hasn't been a Space Sim. Like, a proper 
big budget one in like 15 years. I can't wait to get my hands on this. It was the same thing when Street Fighter 4 dropped. So even though, in my opinion, Street Fighter 4 mechanically was vastly inferior to Street Fighter 3, never mind Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo or Alpha 3 or any of the other fantastic Street Fighter games that I strongly recommend people play in lieu of this shit piece, but it, it really just got to the point where I think Yoshinori Oriono lost the plot in terms of the gameplay. He kept slowing it down. I don't know if it was an executive interference or what that, that made them slow it down. They, they've been catering to an audience, to a casual audience, and as the sales figures clearly illustrate, failing to attain that, uh, that casual audience in the aftermath. You know, an example of the casual audience being catered to would be the Ultra Combos from Street Fighter 4, um, because at the end of the day, like, the super combo, the idea of the super combos, you guys all, I'm sure, have played Street Fighter with, ever since the super combo was introduced in, I think it was Super Street Fighter. Super Turbo. Was it Super Turbo was the first one? Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. But anyways, so... Ever since the super combo was introduced, the way that you get the super combo is you play well. You you land hits on someone. And you get a little bit of combo, I think, built up, depending on the game. It varies from game to game. Uh, a little bit of combo for getting beaten up. A little bit. Just for, it's like a participation prize. But you can't just sit there and get your ass kicked and hope to fill your super combo meter. Because that's not how it works. You get super combos by playing well. It's a reward for playing well. Whereas ultra combos you build up by getting your ass beat. Uninterrupted and for blocking hits. And That's what you get an ultra combo for. You are literally, and it's more powerful than a super combo. That's the most ridiculous part. Ultra combos, it's right there in the name, are better than super combos. You are getting rewarded for playing like shit. And you're sort of getting punished for playing well. And if there's anything more casualized than that, I really haven't thought of it in terms of fighting games. It was such a spit in the face of anyone who is a, an actual serious fighting game player. Well, that's that's the classic, even in any other video game, not just fighting games, but that's, that's the classic uh, bone that you throw to casuals is give them a comeback mechanic. Yeah. No, that's, that, that's in the new Mortal Kombat games with the the insulting x-ray attacks that you initiate by hitting two buttons at the same time, boy, that's tough. That's tough, guys. Thanks for that. You know, stuff like... Those kind of things are getting shoehorned into every new fighting game, and it's driving me up the fucking wall. All right, um, Brian, do you have any any last topics you want to jump to? Yes, I have a two-part question from the chat. So, first of all... J.D. Callen asks, Razor, what is your opinion of the Ease series? Uh, haven't played it. Couldn't tell you. Well, Sorry. that simplifies things. It does! <laughs> That's okay. Okay, and... Uh, I'm not pronouncing this, but someone asks, Will Razorfist be reviewing King of Fighters 14? I would love to. I'm, And I am actually planning on it if I get my hands on it. That's... I love... King of Fighters has been moving in the right direction, I feel. You know, they've been doing some interesting things. I'm not crazy about the jump to 3D. I think they had a better idea with the really detailed sprites in King of Fighters 12 and 13. 
But whatever, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I'll certainly rever- reserve judgment. All that matters is how it plays, and if it plays better than Street Fighter 4 and 5, I'm on board. Amen. Um, Finally, one, one last one. Fredford Walker asks, Razor, what is your favorite D&D edition? Oh, shit. You know, I'm not really a big D&D guy. I'm more of a Battletech, Vampire the Masquerade, Shadowrun guy. So oh. I couldn't tell you. I've only sat in on a couple D&D sessions, and I was not the dumb dungeon master, so I don't know the first fucking thing. Uh, as far as video games, Shadows of Mystara, goddammit. <laughs> I love me some Shadowrun. Shadowrun is an awesome role-playing game. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, it is. And those Shadowrun Returns games that Harebrained Schemes has been cranking out... What a fantastic return to form for a series that had been just jungled in the ass by Microsoft. I have bought every one of those, got in on the Kickstarter for Hong Kong. Oh, and God bless them for making a new Battletech game. Okay, so on the tabletop, what's your favorite Shadowrun edition? Oh, man, it's been years since I played the tabletop, so I'm sorry, I couldn't tell you. Okay. Couldn't tell you. The The only game I'm actively playing now would be uh, Battletech, so... Well, what's your favorite mech? Mauler! Yeah. What? Absolutely, Mauler all the way. Uh, and I like I like a Zeus a little bit, and I, for mediums, I like Blackjack. I want to bitch a little bit about how completely, ridiculously, stupidly Microsoft missed the opportunity to drop in a 360 generation or an Xbox One generation Mech Warrior game. What the uh, hell? Yeah, and it and it seems how how much more dunderheaded does it seem now in retrospect with you know with Microsoft having released Titanfall? Like, yeah. Oh, we're not interested in a Mech game now. Here's Titanfall, guys. Go go to town. Like what? You could have used your BattleTech license. You would have had a built-in audience, and you could have marketed it like hell, and it would have been one of your few exclusives on Xbox One. It would have sold even better than Titanfall, and you missed the boat. You you let Piranha Studios make a terrible MechWarrior Online game instead, and ah, uh, just Microsoft, man. You know, back in the day on PC, Microsoft were on top of the world in the early days of the Xbox, in the late 90s, whatever. But they have completely lost possession of a fucking clue in the last five years or so. All right, folks. Um, and we've gone just a tiny, itsy-bitsy touch over time, which, uh, you know, frankly, we don't care about because n- nobody really has high expectations of us hitting time anyway. So... <laughs> We we can do exactly what we want to do because we're rebels. Yep. Like everyone else. Like everyone else, exactly. Yes. All right. Um, I want to thank uh, thank Razor Fest for taking the time out to appear on our tiny, itsy-bitsy little podcast. Um, thank you. And to thank my co-hosts for taking the time to jump in on a Friday night. Uh, folks, this is the Geek Gap Podcast. Typically every Saturday, half an hour of whatever it is we feel like talking about that week. We have now an actual podcast feed. The URL is in the description. Go ahead, copy that into iTunes, click subscribe, and it'll come right direct to your desktop. You can stick it in your Android device, your iPod, iPad, whatever. Um, Check us out. We each of us have Twitter feeds. We each of us have homepage. Check those out. And if you... Shame, shame, shame. Haven't checked out Rageaholic. 
Razor Fist's uh, YouTube channel. I have the URL to that in the description of this yeah. show. Oh, and also thanks to everyone out there who helped to recently make me briefly the 28th best-selling horror author in the world. That was that was good times. Hey, well done. Congratulations on your football. Yeah, uh, gotta, gotta give props to Larry Korea. So. Absolutely. So thanks for tuning in to Geek Gab, folks. We are uh, signing off for now, but don't worry. We will be back.